If you would, take your Bibles and open them up to the book of Acts, chapter 16. Acts 16, I anticipate this will be the last time, at least in this series, we open to Acts 16. We shall see, however. Acts 16, and uh, we are going to attempt to work our way through beginning in verse 16 through the remainder of the chapter, verse 40. Acts 16, 16 through 40. However, what I think I'm going to do, and I haven't told anyone upstairs this yet, so they'll be hearing it as you all hear it, and they're excellent about that. They're patient with me. I think what I'm going to do is read verses 16 to 34. And we'll stop reading there. We will, however, seek to cover the entirety of the text. Acts 16, 16 to 40, the text, 16 to 34, we will read together. And because this is the Word of God and you are the people of God on the Lord's Day, if you are able, would you please stand in anticipation of hearing from the God who continues to speak to us in His Word. Acts 16, beginning in verse 16, Luke wrote as he was carried along by God's Spirit these words. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. 
And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced, along with his entire household, that he had believed in God. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God, church family, will stand forever. You may be seated. Christianity has been described as a creedal religion. Creedal, C-R-E-E-D-A-L. In other words, becoming a Christian has consistently meant, among other things, believing and professing truths about God, about Christ, about salvation, about humanity, about sin, about the future, etc. In fact, perhaps more than any other religion, Christians have produced creeds that serve to summarize what it is that Christians believe. And Christian creeds, by the way, have varied greatly in complexity, and they have varied in content. But perhaps, perhaps the earliest Christian creed to appear in the church appeared in Greek using only two Greek words. These two Greek words were kurios, Jesus, translated into English with three words. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. In fact, many early Christians used this as a retort, as a response to the demand of the Roman Empire to confess the lordship of Caesar. And so many Romans would say something like this, Caesar is Lord. And by that, of course, meaning supremely authoritative over all the world. Even having the attributes, as it were, or the status of a divine being. And the church would, would retort and respond rather than Caesar being Lord. No, no, Jesus is Lord. However, the early church knew that all authorities, all authorities, including Caesar, okay, different from the Roman culture and the Roman Empire, all authorities, including Caesar, are properly understood as subordinate to the preeminent authority of the risen and ascended Jesus Christ. It wasn't, it wasn't that early Christians failed to respect and even give a certain amount of homage to earthly authorities. Early Christians spoke a lot about the importance of honoring governing authorities, even submitting to the emperor. But the emperor's authority was only ever understood in the church under the preeminent authority and the ultimate authority of Jesus Christ. Well, Acts 16 Verses 16 to 40 is a display of the authority of Jesus. It's a manifestation of the authority of Jesus. And in particular, 
The authority of Jesus to rescue, that's important. Jesus' authority is manifested throughout our text through the ways in which and the people whom he rescues. And so this morning, what we're going to do is identify and unpack three episodes where Jesus demonstrates his supreme authority by rescuing. If you're taking notes, first, we will unpack the rescue of a slave girl. The rescue of a slave girl where Jesus shows his authority over evil spirits. You can, if you're just jotting down notes, you can just write down the rescue of a slave girl as a kind of heading. Second, we will observe the rescue of a jailer. The rescue of a jailer where Jesus shows his authority over death and judgment. And then third, and finally, after the rescue of a slave girl and the rescue of a jailer, we will conclude with the rescue of Paul and Silas, where Jesus shows his authority over earthly rulers. Jesus is supremely authoritative over evil spirits, over death and judgment, and over earthly rulers. And he shows us this through these three rescues. So that's the roadmap for us this morning. Younger worshipers in the room, there are a couple of items I want you to look for as we're moving through this text. Two items. First, why were some of the people angry at Paul and Silas when they cast the evil spirit out of the slave girl? There's this this moment in the text where, where Paul casts out an evil spirit from this or out of this slave girl, and others respond with anger. And they actually, that anger leads to Paul and Silas being beaten and imprisoned. Why were they so angry? You'll see that in the text, and I'll try to flag that as we get there, okay? Second, younger worshipers, I want you to look for this. What were Paul and Silas doing when God caused an earthquake? So in the text, they're in jail, and it's the middle of the night, and they're doing something. In fact, there are two verbs in our English translations that are used. And what are they doing when God causes this earthquake? So pay close attention to these things. And uh, parents, grandparents, just as a reminder, use these questions if they serve you. If they serve you in shepherding our younger worshipers, use them to include the younger theologians in the room. We want them to be in the text with us throughout the sermon. Well, let's begin with our first Heading our primary points. Number one, let's look at the rescue of a slave girl. This first episode takes place as Paul and Silas and perhaps even others were on their way to gather by the riverside. We were told this earlier in Acts chapter 16 where they met Lydia and a group of other women gathering for prayer by the riverside on the Sabbath day outside of the gate of Philippi probably indicating, and we said this last Lord's Day, probably indicating that there weren't enough Jews to have a synagogue. So this is kind of the beginning of a Jewish synagogue or a place of worship. And uh, we were also told actually earlier in chapter 16 that Paul and Silas and others had spent some days in Philippi. We don't know how long exactly, but they were there for some days. And so on one of those Sabbath days, verse 16 picks up. And they're on their way on the Sabbath day to the riverside outside of the gate of Philippi, presumably to gather with God's people for prayer and instruction. And as they were on their way, they were met by a slave girl 
By the way, the word that's used here for slave girl could be a young girl, could also be a slave woman. It's likely a woman of a younger age, but it's not necessary. What is apparent, however, is that she was a slave. And so this slave girl or slave woman who, according to the English Standard Version in verse 16, had a spirit of divination. And the Greek used here, I don't always mention the Greek, don't always pronounce the Greek. Uh, Sometimes I do, sometimes it's unhelpful and I do. Uh, Sometimes perhaps it's helpful. Here I think it's actually helpful. Here the Greek spirit of divination is pneuma, which is the word for spirit. You don't have to necessarily remember that. Puthona, and we're going to come to that in just a moment. Why did I mention Puthona, spirit of divination? Um, You can hear the English word python, if you pay attention to this, in the word Puthon in Greek. So this is a python spirit. Interesting, isn't it? A python is a kind of what? Snake. And those of you who know your Bibles, your mind ought to begin running now to texts. And so this is a python spirit. On the one hand, what Luke is doing, I think, is he's presenting a kind of confrontation between the servant of Christ and the servant of the Roman god Apollo. And there's a lot of background there, and we don't have to get into all of that, but Apollo was believed to speak through these women who were possessed by a python spirit this particular kind of spirit, okay? So on the one hand, you have, you have a servant of Christ in the Apostle Paul and, and in Silas confronted by a servant of this other god, false god, Apollo. And she has this python spirit. On the other hand, and perhaps more, more importantly as we, as we know God's word, and I, I alluded to that in just a moment ago. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4, we know that there is only one God, okay? So Apollo is not God. He's not even a God. All other so-called gods are imposters. They're charlatans. In fact, Paul actually says later, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that these so-called gods are actually demons. So it's not that they don't exist. It's that they're not who they claim to be. They exist. Demons are active in the world. Evil spirits are active in the world. And an evil spirit is active in this text in Acts 16. So keep that in your mind for just a moment. In Acts 16, we have a woman possessed by an evil spirit or a demon that Luke refers to as a python spirit. Now, just to make it clear for us, right? Who deceived Eve in the garden? A serpent. A snake. Moreover, Genesis 3.15, God made a promise. He promised enmity between the snake and the woman and between the snake's offspring and the woman's offspring. And the snake's offspring, as it were, would bruise the heel of the woman's offspring, but the woman's offspring would bruise the head. In other words, deal a death blow to the snake's offspring. Now, a number of paths we could take here. This is finally, of course, fulfilled, climactically fulfilled, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The one, according to Galatians 4, born of a woman. 
the final offspring of woman, who deals a death blow to Satan on the cross and by means of the resurrection. But in our text, Acts 16, now, now it's the body of Christ going out and waging war against the offspring of the one who has been decisively defeated but is still active until Jesus Christ returns. And so that's the stage that's been set here. And it's important that we see that. This is not, this is not simply a spirit of divination. I think a lot gets lost in that translation. This is a python spirit. This is an evil spirit from Satan himself, the serpent. So the stage is set in this episode for a conflict. And the conflict ultimately is between a servant of Christ and a servant of Satan. Spoiler alert. Conflict doesn't last that long, okay? I remember, I remember being younger, a young follower of Jesus Christ, and I would go to various camps, youth camps and whatnot. Learned a lot of great things there. Learned a lot of awful things there, too. Um, by the way, I, I, I hope I've taught a lot of great things. I've also probably taught a lot of awful things, just to be frank. So um, I'm throwing rocks while living in a glass house. Be aware of that, please. But one, one, of, one of the camps I went to, I'll never forget this. As a young Christian, I was so impressionable by what I saw. And, uh, and this drama and this dramatization was between the forces of darkness and the forces of light. And it was, there was this combat that occurred between Satan and, between, and Christ. And, and uh, I was really taken by this reality in the drama it went on and on and on. And, and the way they dramatized it is it was a tug of war. And Christ would pull and win a little bit, and then Satan would pull and win a little bit. No, 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 no. No. Um, well, look at the text. Notice, notice what happens in the text. Verse 18, this she kept doing for many days, Paul having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. It came out that very hour. Really uneventful, isn't it? Not much of a tug of war happening. It's important to recognize that. There is only one sovereign over heaven and earth. And Satan can only operate according to the Lord's sovereign will. So we see that in the text. But I want you to notice what this slave girl persistently declares about Paul and Silas. Verse 17. This is fascinating to me. We're not going to spend this much time. <laughs> You're thinking, how are we going to get through the text? I am too, but we won't spend this much time in all the verses. This really sets the stage for the remainder of the chapter, though. Verse 17. Here's what she says. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And we want to say, amen. Right? That's great. That's a great message. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. So what's wrong with this statement? After all, she says it enough, yet Paul finally gets annoyed. And the Greek there means something maybe more closely akin to deeply disturbed. And then he does something about it under the authority of Christ. Again, it's not Paul doing it. Paul is an instrument in the hands of the risen and ascended Christ. So what's wrong with this? What's wrong with this woman saying this? Well, on the one hand, there is the problem with the source. The source is the spirit 
This evil spirit, this python spirit behind the declaration and the evil spirit knows the truth about God. By the way, evil spirits know the truth about God. They have the kind of faith that condemns. They don't have the kind of faith that Scripture promotes that results in worship and surrender. That's important, James 2, right? Demons have faith, but it's a false faith. It's a recognition of the facts. This evil spirit knows they're servants of the Most High God, but that evil spirit doesn't like that and refuses to submit to the Most High God. That's important to say here. And so one of the problems is the source. On the other hand, there's another problem. It may be that the statement is actually false. And I also tend to think this. Given the context of Philippi, remember Philippi is a Roman colony. Luke has already told us this. This was last week. You can look back, Acts 16, here. Philippi is a Roman colony. What does that mean? It's polytheistic. They worshipped many, many gods. Romans had no problem with you presenting a new god. That's fine. You want another god? Yeah, Adam. Add him or her to the list. It's great. The problem they had with, with Christianity, and we'll come full circle to this, was the claim to exclusivity, that this was the only god. But they recognized and worshipped many gods. So what this statement by the slave girl may have meant is something like this. And by the way, the Greek is ambiguous. It could go either way. There's no definite article here, and I'll point it out. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you a way of salvation. I tend to think that's what she's saying. And that's how it would have been understood in a Philippian context. Servants of the Most High God who proclaim one way among many, if you like. But the claim of Christianity is not that the death and resurrection and ascension and promised future return of Jesus is one way to a right relationship with God. Christ spoke unequivocally to this. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, John 14, 6. In fact, we've even seen this in the book of Acts. Acts 4, verse 12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Friends, central to Christianity is a claim to exclusivity. If Jesus Christ is the way, if God is the one true and living God, and there is no other God, if indeed it is the case that God will not share his glory with anyone else, then it follows that Christianity is not one option among many. It is the only way to a right relationship with God. And this is what bothered the Roman Empire. This was the problem they had with Christianity. And I think it begins to surface right here in the text. By the way, we could bring that into our culture, right? So many similarities between the Roman Empire and our contemporary climate. Um, Many people, many people have no problem with the claim that Jesus is your truth. 
or that Christianity is my truth. The problem our culture has, our broader culture takes, and the issue it takes against Christianity is when we claim that Christianity is the truth. It is the, to still a term that perhaps is unhelpful, but maybe communicates, it's the meta-narrative that governs all other narratives. That's the problem, often. But that is indeed the claim of Christianity. So, as we saw in the text, Paul turns to the Spirit, commands it to come out of the girl on account of the authority of Jesus, and it came out that very hour. And so we see here in this rescue of the slave girl, we see Jesus demonstrating his authority over evil spirits. We could say it this way. This is Jesus' authority over Satan himself. And then the story takes a turn. Notice verse 19. Because the authority of Jesus does not preclude the suffering of his servants throughout this age. That's important to say. Verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone... They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. Young worshipers, this was one of your questions. The reason some were angry at Paul and Silas, by the way, those some who were angry were the ones that owned the girl. The reason they were angry was because they lost money. They lost money when Paul cast out the evil spirit. They made a lot of money on this woman fortune-telling, speaking oracles from this python spirit. They made a lot of money on this, and they lost this gig because the Apostle Paul had cast the spirit out of this woman. And by the way, church, we ought to take note here of the relationship between love of money and satanic influence. No one can serve two masters. As Jesus said, you will either hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And what we find throughout Scripture and throughout human history is one of the instruments the enemy uses to entice us is love of money. And that's precisely what happens in the text. So the authorities have Paul and Silas beaten, this is Now we're summarizing. We're really moving quick, quickly through the text. The authorities have Paul and Silas stripped, and they're beaten, and then they're thrown into jail where they were placed into the inner prison, and their feet were fastened in the stocks. And there's a particular jailer there who's told to keep close watch on these two troublemakers. And this brings us to our next episode. So we've seen the rescue of a slave girl through which Jesus demonstrates his authority over evil spirits, over Satan. Now we find the rescue of a jailer. Notice verses 25 and 26, if you would. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Verse 26. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Now, young worshipers, did you notice this in the text? Did you notice what Paul and Silas were doing right before the Lord caused the earthquake? In the middle of the night, what were Paul and Silas doing? They were praying and 
singing hymns to God. How about that? I don't know about you. I don't think that would be my natural response to having been stripped, beaten with rods, thrown into jail, fastened into stocks. And yet, Paul and Silas respond with prayer and hymn singing. We used to call, you know, we, we would have, I don't know, this is, a, this is a thing as much anymore, but we'd have singings. You, you familiar with this? Um, early as a follower of Jesus, I would, would gather together on like the fifth Sunday and have fifth Sunday singings. Well, Paul and Silas have one right there in the prison, a singing. And did you notice, did you notice this? Other prisoners are listening to them. Now, why does that matter? Why do we need to know? As Lucas carried along by the Spirit of God, that the other prisoners were listening. There perhaps are several reasons why Luke chooses to tell us as he's carried along by God's Spirit this detail. But let me submit to you one reason. Christians, that Christians suffer is nothing remarkable to the world. Why? Everybody suffers. So that Christians suffer is nothing remarkable to the world. How Christians suffer is what makes us unique. What are these prisoners doing? They're taking note of the way Paul and Silas respond to suffering. You ever had this conversation with someone? I I have. Something like this. You're going through a difficult time, perhaps even the death of someone you love dearly. And there's grief, and there's loss, and, and, and you are lamenting, and, and indeed crying out, how long, O oh Lord, and yet you're still trusting the sovereign benevolence of God. You're, you're still leaning into Christ, and, and you're surrounded by God's people, and, and you recognize that the world is not the way it ought to be, but that, that world, this world won't remain forever, that a day is coming when Christ will return and make all things new, and so that hope is serving to challenge the loss. Now, I know sometimes it's less the case depending on the loss. I get it. But then there's a conversation with someone who says, how? How do you remain even somewhat hopeful? Or I've noticed a difference in you. What is that difference? I've been asked that question. What, what's, what makes you different than other people? And, you know, I played slow pitch softball. That's a slow pitch as a Christian, okay? When someone says, what makes you different? Okay, so just remember what I said here. This is a slow pitch lobbed over the plate. Jesus, okay? What makes us different is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What makes us different is we know death is temporary, In fact, we also know that every enemy of ours and every enemy of Christ's has actually been placed under his feet decisively at the cross. We know that we will reign with Christ forever and ever, that the day is coming when he will make all things new, when everything that sin and shame has taken from us, he will restore and a thousandfold more. And while that doesn't take away our grief, Don't misunderstand me. It does serve to challenge it. And someday will eclipse it. Someday, indeed, our grief will be eclipsed. 
when we're face to face with Christ. And so here in the text, I think that's one of the reasons other prisoners are watching and they're baffled. You've been stripped, beaten, and imprisoned, and now you're praying and singing? Right? So they're scratching their heads. Not that they are suffering, but how these believers are suffering. And then there's an earthquake. There's an earthquake, and we are to understand as we read this text that this earthquake is caused by God. By the way, it's not the only time in the New Testament there's an earthquake. Matthew 28, 1 and 2. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. So as we read through the book of Acts, we come to Acts 16, there's an earthquake in the prison. We are to understand that this was a manifestation of the power of the resurrected Lord Jesus. The resurrected Lord Jesus is at work. That's the cause of the earthquake. Now, I know we're moving somewhat quickly through portions of this, but I do think it's best understood all together as a demonstration of Christ's authority. Look with me at verses 27 through 31. So this earthquake happens when the jailer woke, and it's difficult to know when he woke. Is it right after the earthquake? Is it right at the end of the earthquake? I tend to think that the sound of the earthquake probably served to wake him up. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he supposed that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, we are all here. Another miracle. Get a room full of prisoners to stay put when they don't have to. Verse 29, and the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and he said, sirs, by the way, the word that's used there is curioi, lords. Again, their relationship to Christ is implied, even in the language. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. So the circumstances of the prisoners being set free, the experience of almost taking his own life, by the way, the jailer, which he would have done, why? Because he would have been held responsible for the prisoners getting out. And, and, and by the way, there's been some things written on this. Likely, he would have been held liable to all of, all of the crimes of those prisoners, so here, he might as well kill himself. His life is over anyway. But then the decision of Paul and Silas and the other prisoners to stay put, when they could have fled, and all of this leads the jailer to fall down on his knees and recognize his need to be saved. And then Paul and Silas answered with beautiful brevity, believe in the Lord Jesus. By the way, hear the language? Believe in the Lord Jesus. That's the thrust of this section. The authority of Jesus Christ over evil spirits and now over death and judgment. 
The jailer was about to take his own life, and it's Christ through his servants that rescues him out of that death. And then the jailer falls on his knees and asks, what must I do to be saved? Saved from what? Doubtless, some sense of judgment. After all, there's been an earthquake, which would have likely been interpreted as a divine activity. What must I do to be saved from death and judgment? Christ exercises here authority over death and over judgment by offering salvation and rescue to this Philippian jailer. And the exhortation that Paul and Silas gave the jailer, I give to you this morning, friends. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Believe in, trust in, surrender to Jesus as Lord. Lord over heaven and earth, Lord over your life. The Lord who exercised and demonstrated and secured his lordship. How? By means of his death in your place and for your sins. By means of his resurrection from the dead on the third day. By means of his many appearances. By means of his ascension back into heaven where now he sits at the right hand of the Father. This this Lord who will finally demonstrate his authority when he comes back to this earth and makes all things new. Trust in, surrender to, believe in in this Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. And if you'd like to talk more about that, we would love to talk with you about what it means to believe in Jesus, who Jesus is, what are the implications of all of this, what does it mean to follow Jesus Christ. We'd love to visit with you about this. Meet us after the service. If you have a friend here that you can talk to, do that. But then you can also come to that room out there called Crossroads. Go into that room and meet with one of us Let us come alongside of you and you perhaps alongside of us as we learn what it means to trust in and submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So the jailer does just that. He believes and he's baptized as a member of the family of God. And here again, by the way, we have another household baptism. Uh, You can go back to last week's sermon because we don't have time to deal with it this morning. Go back to last week's sermon and listen to that just snippet there, explanation on the household baptisms. It's my understanding here that everyone who believed the gospel was baptized. And that was a kind of representation of the household. So Jesus has authority over death and judgment, and he demonstrates that through the rescue of a jailer. Finally, finally, in addition to the rescue of a servant girl, through which Jesus demonstrates his authority over evil spirits, and a rescue of a jailer through which Jesus demonstrates his authority over death and judgment, we find third, the rescue of Paul and Silas. And we are almost done here with the text. Look with me at verses 35, 36, and 37. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, let those men go. I don't know what will happen with the magistrates. But God is doing so much here and demonstrating the authority of Jesus. And doubtless, of course, they've heard about all of this. They've heard about the earthquake. Let them go. Get them out of there. Verse 36, the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. I love that. Go in peace. Please. No more. This is kind of like the Israelites leaving Egypt, right? Go in peace. 
Verse 37, but Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned. There's no trial. Men who are Roman citizens. Now, he hasn't said this until this point. This matters in a Roman colony. You don't treat a Roman citizen this way. Uh-oh. There are a lot of conversations about how, or real attempts to answer the question, why did Paul not bring it up until now? I tend to think that we're driving to Rome, and it was necessary for Paul and Silas to go by means of suffering. But here, we are Roman citizens, and you've thrown us into prison, and do they now throw us out secretly? Nah. No. Let them come themselves and take us out. (laughs) When the officials found out that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, what did they do? They were afraid. As the text goes on to say, and then as a result, verse 39, we're summarizing here. You can look down at the text. Verse 39, they came and they apologized. Please forgive us. They apologized to Paul and Silas, and they took them out of jail themselves. Now, don't miss this. The magistrates who thought they had authority over Paul and Silas now are apologizing on what basis in the text, the authority of Christ. Not only does Jesus have authority over evil spirits, Not only does Jesus have authority over death and judgment, Jesus has authority over all earthly rulers. Without exception. Church family, there is no authority that rivals the authority of Christ. None. As Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 to 23, God manifested his great might when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That is incredibly comforting church family. That means whatever happens with America. Whatever those in authority attempt to do, they can only do under the benevolent sovereignty of Christ. That's it. And to demonstrate that, now notice, to demonstrate that Acts 16 does not teach us Paul and Silas didn't suffer. They were stripped and beaten and imprisoned. And through suffering, God exercises his authority in Christ. It's not, it's not in the absence of suffering that God exercises authority throughout this era. It's by means of suffering that Christ exercises and displays his authority among his people even through earthly rulers. Okay, I want to give you a few takeaways. Can I do that? And these are quick, and we'll do an injustice. A few takeaways, and we'll be finished. Okay? 
Three. We're going to do three. Three takeaways. Not four, just three. Three takeaways from the text. So in light of this comforting truth that Jesus Christ is supremely authoritative, and he exercises that authority in the text by rescuing a slave girl, rescuing a jailer, and rescuing Paul and Silas. Three takeaways. First, church, proclaim the authority of Christ. Go and proclaim his authority. Declare to your family, your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, and others that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That his authority is unparalleled, unmatched, unchallenged. Share with others that Christ has conquered by means of his incarnation. He's defeated death by death and come out on the other side through resurrection that nothing can separate his people from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Proclaim to others, proclaim to your children that someday King Jesus is going to return and make all things new, reigning forever and ever, and call on others to trust in and surrender to this Jesus who offers them rescue, rescue from sin, rescue from affliction, rescue from death, rescue from judgment. Okay, so first, proclaim the authority of Christ. Second, live under the authority of Christ. Live under the authority of Christ. If Christ is Lord over all, he is Lord over my life, right? If he's Lord over heaven and earth, he's Lord over your household. If he's Lord over creation, he's Lord over your family, your friendships, your work, your hobbies. And so seek to place every part of your life under Christ's rightful reign. Ask yourself how your life reflects Christ's supreme authority and ask yourself this question, one that I have to ask myself, should ask myself daily, what areas of my life fail to show that Christ is Lord? Paul even spoke of taking every thought captive to obey Christ in 2 Corinthians 10.5. How do my thoughts reflect Christ's authority? Or how might they fail to do so and then repent and turn back to the authority of Christ? And then third, in addition to proclaiming the authority of Christ and living under the authority of Christ, rest Rest because of the authority of Christ. Friends, if you are in Christ today, nothing can snatch you out of his sovereign hands. Nothing. Your sin is no match for Christ. Sickness offers no threat to your eternal safety. Cancer becomes an instrument in the hands of your Redeemer for your eternal good. Death itself, that last great enemy, has been defeated by the death of Christ and now, now only serves as the path through which you step into the presence of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We need fear nothing because Christ reigns today, church. This is why 
we sing words like this. There's peace that outlasts darkness. Hope that's in the blood. There's future grace that's mine today that Jesus Christ has won. So I can face tomorrow, for tomorrow's in your hands. All I need you will provide, just like you always have. I'm fighting a battle you've already won. No matter what comes my way, I will overcome. I don't know what you're doing, but I know what you've done. I'm fighting a battle you've already won. Let's pray together.